We resume this morning our study, our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew into chapter 23. And I know some may be saying, well, it's about time. And so, <clears throat> a very serious message we have to consider in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, the Lord Jesus Christ is denouncing the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who had opposed him, those who would be instrumental in bringing about his death. In verse 1 of this chapter, then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. He didn't just speak to the scribes and Pharisees. He would speak to them in the presence of the people so that it would be heard, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, all therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. And, of course, he goes on to say what they do, the works they perform, they do it for self-praise. They do it so people will praise them. They're not interested in the glory and the name of God being magnified and honored, they're interested in their own glory and their own name and praise being brought to them. And uh, in the 13th chapter, and we're going to be looking particularly into verses 13 through 15, but the, denunci the denunciation, the woes that Lord, the Lord pronounces upon the scribes and the Pharisees continue really through verse 33. But we're going to be considering the first three woes the Lord pronounced upon the hypocrites who he would point out and show the hypocrisy concerning. In Matthew 23 and verses 13 through 15, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass see in land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Well, I want to bring you up to date somewhat with the context. Now, hopefully those of you who followed our study and our messages through Matthew will remember these things. The Lord had met with and silenced those who opposed him. And... Uh, they used all the subtlety they could muster in order to oppose him. Their purpose, to discredit him before the people. They are envious of him. They're envious of his present popularity. He, who performed so many miracles of mercy, that those miracles can't be counted. He who delivered many from demoniac, possession, who taught with such wisdom that the people were, quote, astonished at his teaching, and who had presented himself 
as the promised Messiah by his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. He who fulfilled the ancient prophecy of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And the multitudes had followed him. They followed him to the city of Jerusalem. They met him and acclaimed him to be, quote, the son of David. Of course, that was a title of the Messiah. And they would shout loud hosannas. The Jewish leaders, scribes, and Pharisees, who would also be followed by the Sadducees, they were incensed at his present popularity. They confronted him in the temple precincts, in the presence of the crowds, and endeavored to entangle him and lost every argument. Instead of catching him with their questions, he'd exposed them before the multitude, leaving them afraid to even further question him, to confront him in any way, fearful because his incredible, infinite wisdom had silenced them. He then, addressing his disciples in the presence of the multitude, he revealed their sinister and their dark character. And he did so in the strongest of warning. They tell others what to do, they won't touch it. They do what they do for self-praise, for the praise of men. Now, he turns particularly the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, denouncing them with the dreaded woe. He exposes them as hypocrites. He is the only one who knows them thoroughly. The people think them to be the righteous ones. He exposes them for what they really are. Hypocrites are those who put on a face. They appear outward what they are not inward. They don't show their real character. They hide it. But they could not hide their condition from him. It was impossible. He is the searcher of hearts. And he whose eyes pierce to the very center and essence of being. He knows every thought, every intent. He is the supreme judge of all. And then he denounces these hypocrites in the strongest of language. You cannot read the Gospels with any real observation without seeing that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, set himself squarely against the self-righteous. He denounced them. He boldly exposed them. He who was so merciful 
to the vilest of sinners who showed incredible compassion to those who were enslaved to the vilest of moral transgressions. Say, of course, at one time, the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Very solemn. Now his holy anger is against those who are righteous in their own eyes, who are inwardly corrupt. Later in this chapter, he says they're like graves that are taken care of, they're cleaned up, they look really good outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. They're not inwardly what they profess to be outwardly. Blessed those who hear him, those who are broken over sin, those who come, who come to him, thankful that God does not despise a broken and a contrite heart, is nigh unto them that are of a broken and a contrite heart. Too few have ever come to be broken over sin. And therefore they know not the salvation of God in Christ, even though there may be a profession. But the vilest of sinners, when God by his grace does a convicting work in them, and they come to see what they are by nature, they also come to realize that they may come freely to the Son of God and that he will re receive them. They find that he is merciful and they can rest in the promise of his word. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The judgment of woe, his righteous wrath, rest upon those who are exalted in their own eyes, who think themselves good enough in their own sight. They feel no real need of repentance, and they refuse him who came into the world to save sinners. So we begin looking at the first three of eight woes that are pronounced against Hypocrites. The first two woes. Denouncing those who use religion for their own enrichment while keep, uh, keeping others from the way into the kingdom of God, his eternal kingdom. And so we'll look first at verses 13 and 14. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For ye devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Now, while verse 13 shows their dangers to others, verse 14 displays the character that's behind it. They shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. How were they shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men? By their opposition 
to the one who is the only door into that kingdom by opposing the messianic king himself. The scribes and the Pharisees, knowing nothing of the true nature of God's kingdom, would not have refused the Lord Jesus Christ if he had fit their assessment of what the Messiah was to be. But he didn't fit their expectation of the Messiah. He didn't fit what they thought. He didn't come with the pomp and ceremony they thought the Messiah would come with. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom of Jewish glory for which they were looking. He came lowly. We came in poverty. He came to a lowly family. He lived off the kindness of others. Solemn. He had nowhere to lay his head. He, the Son of God. And they would not have it. They stumbled at him, we're taught. In scripture. He didn't fit. Their model. Of what they thought the Messiah should be. He didn't fit their plans. But in so refusing him. They rejected the only stone. The only foundation stone. Upon which the kingdom of God must be erected. As Peter would charge them, of course, on the day of Pentecost, and you read in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. That had been prophesied long before, seven centuries before, by the prophet Isaiah. And declared, of course, by Peter in his writings in First Peter chapter 2. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And he that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be uh, disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner. You see, they were thinking they were building the building. This stone didn't fit their plans. They rejected the only stone upon which the kingdom of God could be erected. As many, they did not know their greatest need of deliverance. Not from enemies without. They had a far more deadly enemy as all of us were born into this world with. And that enemy is called sin. Self-centered rebellion against God and his supreme rule. They thought themselves righteous. They thought God owed them his favor. They saw no need whatsoever of true repentance from sin. As Paul would say later, repentance toward God. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They opposed the only way into God's kingdom. But only did, not only did they 
not, not only uh, did they enter not in themselves, they did everything they could, everything they possibly could to keep others from believing and coming to Christ. The implication, because there were many who heard the Lord Jesus Christ and were on the verge of entering and going into the kingdom, is as he would earlier say to a scribe, or did say earlier to a scribe, they were not quit, uh, far from the kingdom of God. They were not far from God's kingdom. We're here. The kingdom of God is present here. And we're here in the, uh, this region of human responsibility. And human responsibility is just as clearly taught in Scripture as the absolute sovereignty of God. God is the God of salvation. A salvation that's all of Him. It's all of grace. It's all by the working of His Holy Spirit. He sovereignly brings about the new birth. It's not something that man contributes to. God, in His sovereign will only, brings about that new birth where he will. The Lord Jesus says in John 3, the wind blows where it listeth, that is, where it wills. You don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So it's everyone that is born of the Spirit. That's a sovereign work of the sovereign God. Salvation is of God, completely, totally of God. And yet this does not cancel the responsibility all people have to repent and believe the gospel. That's why we have, for instance, Paul preaching in uh, Athens in Acts chapter 17 and verse, verses 30 and 31. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. No matter whether we can get it together or not, the Lord Jesus Christ taught that salvation is by the sovereign will of God only. And yet all still bear their responsibility. God saves according to his will. And yet we have, as in Ezekiel chapter 18 God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. And even in our present text, though he must pronounce awful, denunciating woes, yet all at the same time, the Lord's holy heart weeps over the judgment that must come on those who would not come to him. The very last verse. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are come unto thee, how often would I have gathered you under my wings? He says, and you would not. But what are some of the ways that these self-righteous, praise-seeking religionists would keep others from coming into the kingdom of heaven? They themselves did not even recognize 
the kingdom of heaven. They didn't realize it was already present in their midst. That there were already those who were entering into the kingdom. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, that's speaking of John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man is pressing into it. Those who are coming into it are coming into it already. As Luke declared. The law and the prophets were until John. It's he who would declare the Messiah had come. He who would be the forerunner and go before him. He who fulfilled in himself the prophecy of Malachi concerning the coming of Elijah. As the Lord would clearly teach. He of whom God said through the prophet would go before him, before Jehovah. Jehovah was incarnate now. Jehovah was in their presence. The kingdom of God had come. But remember, they were looking for a political kingdom. One that would come with victory and power and great glory for the Jewish nation. To them... It must be shown with all of its outward glory and pomp and power. And so they inquired of him at one time when the kingdom of God would come. In Luke chapter 17 and verses 20 and 21. And the Lord Jesus says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. This is a reality now. Repentance from sin and faith in Christ, bringing to God, resulting in a yielding to God in Christ as the sovereign ruler of heart and life. That was entrance into the kingdom of God. In opposing the Lord Jesus, doing all that they could to turn the people from him. These blind leaders were also condemning themselves as well as those who were influenced by them. They were shutting the kingdom of heaven against men. Did the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit of God, perform a multitude of miracles of mercy and the very miraculous works of the prophets that the prophets had foretold would be marks of the Messiah. Did he fulfill that? Indeed he did. What did they say he performed his mighty works in the power of? In the power of Satan. Why so? Because the people had dared ask the question, is not this the son of David? People were close to the kingdom. They were on the verge of entering, if you please. But the Pharisees did all they could to stop them. Did they use fear to keep people from confessing the Lord Jesus Christ as the Christ? Yes. 
Anyone who did so, they said, would be excommunicated. They would be put out of the synagogue. In the last two chapters of this great gospel, you find them endeavoring to entrap the Lord Jesus Christ by a series of questions. Endeavoring to diminish his influence among the people. And those who had just shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, they couldn't take that. Even after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and sent forth his apostles to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, they would oppose him in his servants, as the apostle Paul would write to the Thessalonians, quote, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They were always in opposition. These were vile. They were wicked. Their spiritual father was the devil. Even with all their religious veneer, and thus they were pride-filled and completely self-seeking, they were void of any real love and care for other than themselves. And the Lord would immediately prove it in his exposing of them. The second woe then reveals their character in verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. They put on a religious face. They declared themselves to be the righteous ones. Yet they used this religious veneer of pretended piety to rob even poor widows of their livelihood. Everything they did, even their long praying in the presence of vulnerable widows, was but a pretense for selfish gain. You have to wonder. I had to wonder as I considered this about the poor widow. You remember who put her last two mites into the offering plate? Into the treasury, you have to wonder if she wasn't a victim of their wicked scheme. Those who used the name of God for selfish gain, those who have no care whatsoever for those they take advantage of, shall receive the greater damnation. That's a solemn thing. Those who use religion to take advantage of people shall have the greater damnation. Think of some televangelist telling those who know no better and listen to them. If they send them their money, God's going to bless them. Oh, they're going to become rich, as it were. He will heal them of some dreaded disease. Or enrich them with great increase. Religion has often been used. As a cloak. 
of covetousness. Taking advantage of the unwary for the purpose of pure selfish gain. The third woe. The zeal of making converts to their type of Judaism. And those converts end up worse than themselves. In verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. In the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews were very zealous in endeavoring to convert Gentiles from their idolatry uh, and uh, their paganism to the worship of the one true God. These were called proselytes. It was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. When a Gentile was turned from the worship of many gods and the immorality that was associated with it to recognize the God of Israel as the one true God, that was a good thing. And this, of course, also became a fertile field later for the gospel, as was the case with the Roman centurion called Cornelius in the book of Acts. The Pharisees, on the other hand, it appears, were especially zealous in endeavoring to convert Gentiles not simply to Judaism, but to their particular form of Judaism. There were two kinds of proselytes. Some simply turned from their heathen practice to become sufficiently impressed with the Jewish religion, enough so that they would attend the synagogue. These were called proselytes of the gate. Others, though, went much, much further, adopting in full the Jewish religion. They became Jews by religion, if not by ethnicity. These were called proselytes of righteousness. Obviously, it was these proselytes of righteousness that the Pharisees zealously sought to convince to adopt Pharisee, the Pharisee Judaism. I think William Hendrickson well expressed it this way. It was not the purpose of the Pharisees merely to change a Gentile into a Jew. No. He must become a full-fledged, legalistic, ritualistic, hair-splitting Pharisee. One filled with fanatical zeal for his new salvation-by-works religion. As Jesus implies, soon this new convert would even out-Pharisee the Pharisees in bigotry. For it is a fact that new converts frequently outdo themselves in becoming fanatically devoted to their new faith. Well, you can see that same type of fanatical zeal today. You can see it 
for instance, in those who are converted to a radical form of Islam. Muslims, they come to hate others with venomous, murderous zeal. But in measure, the same kind of self-righteous legalism can arise in professing Christianity as well, where there is a zeal for a works gospel that easily brings despite of those who do not conform to their man-made regulations. Such converts as those who were made by the Pharisees were not children of God. They were children of hell. As the Lord said, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he's made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. By the way, that word for hell doesn't simply mean the grave here. It's Gehenna. And Gehenna was the place that represented eternal torment. These converts became even worse in character than did the Pharisees. And to them, the Lord Jesus would say, of course, in John 8, 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the works of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In Hebrew, a son of hell meant one who was of a hellish nature and one then who was worthy of hell and was bound for it. The truly righteous one, he who is Lord in truth, could not but speak the truth about the Pharisees. What they were doing to themselves and to those who were persuaded of their self-righteous ways. None of us were born righteous. None of us. We were born sinners. We were born spiritually dead to all that truly good and righteous and holy. We didn't come into the world with the knowledge of who God is. We didn't come into the world with a heart that was bent to righteousness, to doing right. We didn't come into the world with a blank slate. We came into this world sinners. None of us by nature could produce a righteousness acceptable to God. Yeah, men can do good things, but steal it from a corrupt nature. Even a good thing comes from a corrupt source, we're taught in Scripture. As in Isaiah 64, we're all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Every one of you, every one of us, we have things we would not want anybody to know we're ashamed of. We have things we wouldn't want those the closest to us to know. We're ashamed. Every one of us have things, sometimes called skeletons in the closet, that we want hidden. We would be absolutely devastated if 
anybody knew it. I don't have any qualms in saying that. Because we were all born into this world sinners. And the only reason we didn't do worse than we did, we didn't have the opportunity. Or we had restraints. But the source corrupt. You see, the Pharisees didn't know that. They couldn't comprehend that. It's only God in mercy makes that known that one will come to recognize they've sinned against the holy God. They've transgressed his moral commands. They've lived for self. They've gone after what will please them. They will do things that they wouldn't want anybody to know. And fearful that anybody might find out. Is it not so? In reading and studying about this work of the preacher in the early days also of my ministry, I found out something. that When the preacher preaches the truth, he has an ally in the conscience of everyone who hears. Whether or not they're brought to a genuine salvation, a conversion from sin to Christ. There's a conscience. You and I aren't innocent. We're sinners. We've sinned against God. We committed vile things in our minds. Some things we wouldn't want anybody to know about. But there's one who does. There's one who sees everything, every thought, every intent. There's one from whom we can hide nothing. It's a solemn thing in the day of judgment that is coming and the conscience of man tells him he's going to stand before an infinitely holy God. And he's going to be exposed. He and she will be exposed in that day. And the things that cause so much trouble and are ashamed of, they'll be exposed. Nothing hidden. Nothing is hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And when one does a work in one's heart, they come to recognize they are worthy of hell. They're worthy of it. They're not worthy of a single thing good from God. And yet he's been incredibly merciful. Incredibly merciful. I can't comprehend the depths of that mercy. It's so far deeper than the ocean. I can't reach to the height of it. It's greater than the Hubble telescope could reach. The mercy of God is incredible. Why he would have mercy upon a sinner like me, that's I have to leave with his will. But thank God he is. You remember 
the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, right? They both go into the temple. The Pharisees, thank God that I'm not like other men are, extortioners, adulterers, unjust, etc. The publican smites his breast and cries, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Lord Jesus says, I want to tell you something. He's the one that went home justified, not the other. That word merciful means propitious. That word propitious means the sacrifice is made. And the sacrifice is made that appeases the wrath of God and removes it. We know that sacrifice is the one sacrifice made by Christ. Want to see how horrendous sin is? Look at the cross. It took the death of the Holy One, bearing the sins of others, to save. Blessed are you, if, by God's grace and that only, you receive a, a righteousness that you didn't work for, that you didn't produce. A righteousness that God puts in your account, becomes yours, but you didn't put it there. The Lord Jesus did. He put his righteousness on your account. He put his righteousness on your account. And God accounts that righteousness yours. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's grace to the vilest of sinners, isn't it, John? That's grace. It's incredible grace and mercy. None of us deserve it. Not in the least. To know Christ, the Son of God. To come to Him as a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. To trust Him and to trust Him only. To accept and rest in His death as the death of your sins. The blood of His cross is the only cleansing. To take him as your only hope of forgiveness. And of a right relationship with God. Is to have him for your righteousness. He's your righteousness. Long ago. The prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23. And in verse 6. Speaks of Jehovah our righteousness. Jehovah God had come manifested in the person who is now denouncing the scribes and Pharisees in our chapter, the one who is actually holy. And he becomes the righteousness of everyone who is called, regenerated by God's grace, and believe. 
of him. Are you in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? He hath made him, wrote Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, to be sin for us. He who had no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only way a sinner has a righteousness accepted by God is in Christ and knowing Him and being His and belonging to Him. Then, then if that becomes true, He would lead you into a different life. You're not going to be the same person you were. All your past sins are wiped away. And you've become a new person. Old things passed away. All things become new. Isn't that a glorious gospel? A glorious gospel. May God bless the ministry of His Holy Word. If you have a hymn, we'll sing it. Beg your pardon? 579. 579. <laughs>